On October 17th, I was invited to be a part of a thing at Central Church called Revive. You probably heard us um, talk about it. You probably saw some advertisements for it. Revive was going to be this thing hosted by local churches where David Platt was going to come in and speak and kind of reinvigorate a passion for missions. And so that night I was asked to be there to um, have a table set up to meet with students and help them take their next step in faith. I was also asked to do kind of a prayer point and all that. So I was there. Here's the problem. I honestly did not want to be there that night. If you ask Carlin, she will tell you, I wanted to be home. We had done for three straight weeks. We had hosted family in our house. We had had far retreat. We had not had a night off for probably about 20 days. Every morning, every afternoon, every evening was consumed with work and with ministry things. And I was completely exhausted. But I had to be there. And I know some of you were there. And it was a fantastic night. See, the prayer time was fine. The worship was really good. And then when David Platt, who was the president of IMB, International Mission Board, and who now is a pastor in Washington, D.C., when he got up to speak, he started with this line. We can manufacture a heart for missions and miss a heart for God. We can manufacture a heart for missions and miss a heart from God. And see, the whole time I was sitting there thinking, he could, because he's so eloquent in his speaking, he has so many great stories, he's just a great communicator and a passionate guy, He could have probably, if he wanted to, gotten 30-plus Compassion Kids adopted that night. He could have probably convinced and convicted many students in that room that evening to call and surrender their life to a call to missions. He could have probably had mission trip sign-ups at an all-time high because of the fervor he could have created. But that's not what he did. Instead of pushing us to act, he pushed us to be. Driving home that night, I was still wrestling with that line. We can manufacture a heart for missions and miss a heart for God. And I got convicted that I, and I wrote this in my journal that evening, I love doing things for Jesus, but how much do I love being with Jesus? Or maybe more plainly, how much do I love Jesus? I want to unpack that for a moment. See, I love doing Christian things. I love loving my wife and loving my child as I'm called to in Ephesians 5. I love serving the church. I have so much fun being at different events with you guys, being a part of things. I love the job I get to do. I love ministry in a lot of ways. I love teaching and preaching. I get to share what I've learned and hopefully it can impact your life. I love serving our campus and getting to have those interactions with people and pray with people. I love serving our community. Saddlewood last semester, and I hate that I'm not able to be a part of it this year, but last semester was probably one of my favorite things to go hang out with the kids and just have a great time. I love leading a small group. And I look around this room right now and see the lives of guys that have come through freshman small group and see how they have changed and how they have grown and how they have taken steps for Christ. I love doing a lot of ministry things. I love being a Christian, and I really like the Christian ethic. It fits with my natural moralism. That's not to say I'm not tempted or enticed by sin. No, that's not true. But I love serving others. I love helping others. I love 
the affirmation that comes along with that, the approval. I love getting the credit. I, I love preaching a good message and then hearing, oh, that was a good message. I love being a Christian. But do I love Christ? I mean, I love his gifts of mercy and grace. I love him as my Savior. We talked about that last week. I even love him as my Lord and, and like to do the things that I'm supposed to do. But do I love him as a friend? Do I love being with Jesus? Or do I simply love doing things for Jesus? I think that many of us probably have the same question rattling around within us. When we get caught up in doing all the things and the right things, but then we forget why we're doing them, right? Our church that we're looking at this morning in Revelation chapter 3 has some similar issues. We're going to be looking at the church of Sardis, and the city of Sardis, it's in chapter 3 of Revelation, the city of Sardis is kind of a city whose best days are behind them. They uh, were once great in power and prestige, but now it's waning, and their influence and status in the community and in the world is declining. The church in Sardis is on its deathbed. They are so compromised to culture that nothing good is written of them. Every other church gets in a, like, hey, you're doing some good things. Sardis, nothing. They are a church that is playing the game of following Jesus. And I think that they speak more to us than we ever want to admit. So Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Let's read what it says. It says this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, to the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names of, in Sardis of people who have not soiled their garments. Sardis's major industry is dying wool um, goods. That They were kind of the home and the mecca of fabrics and dyeing all of that and sending them out. And so when he brings this up, they have not soiled their garments, and he's going to talk about the white robes and all that. It's very hitting home. They understand this. It's like bringing up traditions and values to an Aggie. Like, you get it, right? There are some that have not soiled their garments. Um, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray. Lord, speak to us. For those of us who have a reputation of being alive but we are dead, teach us now how to wake up how to strengthen what remains, how to keep it, how to remember and how to repent. Lord, give us um, the courage to stand up, the honesty to admit it, and uh, convict our hearts this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
The prevailing thought you probably got from me reading that is they have the reputation of being alive, but they are dead. See, even 2,000 years ago, reputation mattered. They cared about their reputation. They wanted to be seen in a positive light. I think of the church of Sardis as a church of Christian Pharisees. They, they want to give off the appearance of doing everything right. They act like they have it all together. They're concerned with what others think of them. They are maintaining an aesthetic, yet they are missing what actually matters. Matthew 23, Jesus calls these people out. I'll throw it on the screen for you. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Yeah, you look good on the outside, but inside you're terrible. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the, that the outside may also be clean. Then he goes on. He's not done. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Man, we've seen that before, right? Outwardly, everything looks great. And yet, inside, what people don't see. I kind of understand Sardis. Because I am I'm an Enneagram 3, because that matters, right? Jack, you're awake now, okay. Uh, and so I care a lot about appearance. I care a lot about what you think of me and how I give myself off. You wouldn't tell that maybe by you know how I dress or comb my hair, but I care a lot about those sort of things. And so uh, I am not the tidiest or cleanest person, and if you've ever visited me in my office, you know that to be the case. Uh, if you've ever been with me on a mission trip, you understand that? Like, I, I just am not. Uh, I'm married to somebody who cares a lot about cleanliness and tidiness, and this week she was sick, and I called her when she should have just been going to bed. Well, i got to get this organized or I can't rest. I don't understand that, right? As long as it fits in a closet somewhere, as long as it can slide underneath the bed, as long as it's not seen, it's not a problem. I, I was most convicted of this or realized this this summer because I've told you I don't like yard work, right? Like, if you ever want to come and just scratch that itch of getting grass cut, you know, come on over to 1411 Fincastle. We've always got it ready for you, all right? Uh, but I don't really care for it. And I have a mentality of kind of treating my yard like a mullet. So, like, the front yard is clean, you know, business in the front. And then it's a little wild in the back, right? Like, if they can't see it, it's not that big of a deal. So... Um, that's kind of how we do it. I cut the back. I don't really care about the back. Like it just kind of parts of it is really bad. We had friends coming over 4th of July. The clings were coming over. We had some other friends cause we're trying to have friends now. Um, and so, uh, we had friends over and I cut the backyard like better and I weeded the fence line and then it dawned on me as, I mean, it's July 3rd when I'm doing this, it dawns on me. As long as I cut what people see, I don't have to worry about like weed eating like beyond the house where they cannot see. And so like I just quit. Like <laughs> the ones in here, like you're going, how did you do that? Like does that not bother you? How did you sleep at night? And I'm like, yeah, perfectly fine. We gave off the appearance 
of everything looks good and your wife is happy because now when people come over there, she's not embarrassed. But I didn't have to do all the work because I'm more concerned with how it looks than actually completing the job. I'm more concerned with the appearance and fooling you than I am with actually doing good work at times. I think we fall into the same trap in our Christian walk. See, we work really hard at being presentable, at being knowledgeable, at being prayerful, at being deep, at being theological. We work very hard at being these things when people can see. But then inside, and what happens when we're alone doesn't match. My most theological and longest and best worded prayers are done aloud. My... Uh, most theological thoughts happen when I can impress someone by my answers. We give off this appearance of deep devotion, but don't really have things backing it up. I guarantee you that there are tons and tons of people who spend more time arranging their quiet time for the gram than they do reading their Bibles, right? Like, we got to have the perfect picture and make sure the coffee mug is there in my journal, and I'm not on page one. And, like, we, we want to make it look good. And let's flip to a page that has a few highlights in different colors, because that means we've been to that page multiple times, right? Like, we spend so much time giving off a reputation because we bow down to the God of approval or the God of perfectionism, and, and we worship that instead of the perfect and approving God. We spend so many hours washing the outsides, cleaning the tombstone and not realizing that it is dead inside. We are really good at living for Jesus, but we struggle living with him. Sardis has that reputation of being alive, but they are dead. And here's the deal. No one knows that they are dead. No one knows. How many of you in this room feel that? You give off the reputation. You're here. You're in small groups. You're involved. You have a Bible that seems worn. You'll pray if called upon. You'll answer. But no one knows that you're just playing a game. That, that you're just coasting from a good youth ministry or from an a invigorating impact camp. No one knows that you just, the only time you open your Bible is at Breakaway each Tuesday. No one knows that your prayer life has been extinct. No one knows. Because you're consumed and concerned with keeping the appearances up. See, here's the deal. I could teach, honestly, for the, the rest of your career here on stuff I've already done. And you wouldn't know. I could lead a small group. Well, Dean would know. He smiled at me. Yeah, he would know because he remembers every single example I've ever used. Uh, but anyways, I could lead a small group on personality and youth ministry knowledge alone. I can get by. And so can you. You can play the game and pretend 
and no one would know. No one will see your lack of growth, your absence in time with Jesus, or your lack of heart for Jesus. As long as you make sure to go to church and small group, to post some spiritual things every once in a while, to make sure to answer here and there, you can give off the appearances but hide what is really happening. But Jesus can tell. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. All right, we're going to end. I have four and a half minutes left um, because Cooper told me I had to get them into service so that they can prepare for leading worship. But four and a half minutes, we're going to look at these five imperatives. Jesus gives them five imperatives of, hey, what do you do? Um, He says, wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. So we're going to look at those five, and I'm going to use the illustration of a fire to help us carry this through. Imagine you're with Bill Killian this week in the Grand Canyon. You've built a fire. You've built a fire, and then Bill, because he's about 55 or so, gets a little tired, you know, in his little pop-up recliner, um, and he begins to fall asleep. And the fire that once was giving off a lot of heat and was roaring and was keeping you warm... Well, no wood's been added, no one's tended to it, and the watchman has fallen asleep, and it begins to die out. The first imperative is this, wake up. We need to see our condition. We need to understand and see that what we thought was going well, what we were pretending all along, is dying or is dead. Bill Mounts in his commentary on Revelation will say it's actually better translated, instead of wake up, be watchful. When the church of Sardis hears that, They connect that to the history of their city. Get this. The city has twice been ransacked because the watchtowermen were negligent in their duties and fell asleep when they were supposed to be watching out. Somebody ascended up. I don't know how they did this exactly. They ascend up to the watchtower, slay the watchman, and then they can ransack the city because no one is keeping defense. Be watchful. Notice. Pay attention to your life. See that the fire is almost out. See, our deadness, spiritual spiritual deadness doesn't happen in an instant, but it's gradual and slow. A few days turns into a few weeks, a few weeks into a few months, a few months turns into where the years go, and we don't realize how far we have gone. So the first one is wake up. Realize your deadness. But he says that the fire, though it is seems completely out, it's too hot to touch, so it's too hot to leave. And so, like, there's still a little bit of life in that fire remaining. There are a few embers still going. Jesus says, your deadness is not complete. And so he says, strengthen what remains. We need to find those embers. I don't know what it is. Is it just a conviction for you that, hey, life is not going as it should. I know that there's a better way to this. And I need to lean into that and go, Jesus, show up because I know what I'm stuck in right now isn't good. Is it a small group that maybe you were just a parasite in for the last year and a half, but now you go, all right, I need you guys actually to walk into my life and hold me accountable and to help me in this. Is it a roommate that has tried to pursue a relationship with you and tried to encourage uh, spiritual things, but you've just pushed off and pushed away that now you go, okay, uh, I do need your help. What are the embers in your life that are still there that can be fanned into flame? Strengthen what remains. Find something that is still has a heartbeat. Thirdly, we find those embers, but we don't want to be crazy with them, all right? We need to go back to our Boy Scout training and figure out what will make a fire. 
How can we help this grow back? We need some oxygen. We need some wood. And Asher will tell you what else you need to build a fire. But, you know, like, we need these things to build back up. So we need to remember. We need to remember the gospel. Because the God who desired me as an enemy also desires me as a hypocrite. The God who desired me when I was far off is the God who desires me when I'm still playing the game. We need to remember the gospel. That we don't save ourselves, that we are not loved for what we have done, but for what he has done on our behalf. That we are not working for his approval, but we are working from his approval. We need to remember these things. We need to remember grace and forgiveness and mercy. So we need to remember how do we build a fire back. And then we need to just do it. Keep it. Do the job. Do the work. Keep it sounds passive. It's not. It's very active. Daily, I am going to take steps towards being what I want to be, towards following Christ, towards what then that flame was going, how I can live that out. How do I combat spiritual deadness? Doing the things that Christ calls me to do. Don't worry how far you're behind. Don't worry how bad it has gotten. Don't worry about your speed or your pace or your position. Remember back the very first week we gathered this semester, I told you I was doing running. I'm still doing running-ish, all right? Not as well, but I'm still doing running-ish. Um, but I had to humble myself and to just do it. And I, yeah, I wanted to be able to run 30 minutes, but I had to follow this plan to get there. Don't worry about the end goal. Just take daily steps towards accomplishing what you can today. And finally, we, we're taking the steps to get the flame back, and it's just going to take time, all right? It doesn't just magically just start combusting. And then here's the big thing. We need to be watchful, and we need to pay attention so that we don't allow the same trap that we fell into last time to happen again. We need to change what we did. We need to repent. Repentance is turning away and turning towards God. Turning away from sin and the choices that um, lead us down a wrong path and turning towards God. So we need to repent. We need to say, all right, I am willing to make big changes in my life for Christ. The way I like to always ask you this is, are you willing to take radical steps for the sake of holiness? Are you willing to take radical steps? Steps that don't make sense unless you're following Christ and he is Lord of your life. Are you willing to take these? The church of Sardis had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. I seriously want you to ask that question this morning, and I'm going to throw two on the screen for you. Do you want to be a Pharisee, or do you want to be a follower? Listen, there's, there's earthly glory in being a Pharisee. You're respected. You're known, you're highly thought of. You probably get more attention. You're thought of as being more holy. Pharisees probably get more leadership positions. Pharisees get uh, you know, better roles. But do you want to be a follower? The second is, do you want a reputation? Or do you want a, rep- a relationship? Is your spirituality something you do to impress the people sitting in this room? Or is it something you do because you love Jesus?
We can manufacture a heart for missions. Or maybe missions isn't your passion. Maybe it's community. Maybe it's the church. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's evangelism. Maybe it's seeing your campus turn to Christ. We can manufacture a heart for any of our passions and still miss a heart for Jesus. I struggle. Not just loving doing things for Jesus, but loving being with Jesus. It's a work. It's an action that I have to take. I can get very caught up in reputation and responsibility. I can get very caught up in what I need to get done instead of what is most important. I hope that for those of you that are like the Church of Sardis this morning, that you wake up. And I hope that for others of you, that you go, okay, I do not want to fall into that trap. I do need to spend more time with Jesus and just being with him, abiding and loving instead of just loving doing things for him. Let me pray and we'll break into our classes.